Our leader tonight will now share for 20 to 25 minutes describing what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Our leader for tonight is Dan. Welcome. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm Dan. I'm an addict and a compulsive overeater. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be here. This was uh, this Tuesday night group was the first group that I ever came to. It was a little bit more than two years ago, and I when I first came to Overeaters Anonymous, and um, I haven't been to many of these Tuesday night meetings here because of my work schedule and so forth. I've kind of moved to to Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings and a few other meetings. But this really was where it started for me, and it's a great honor to to be here and actually speaking to you tonight. Um, I don't have a lot of experience just sort of speaking off the cuff uh, on my experiences, so I have prepared some notes here. I hope, I hope you don't mind. It'll hopefully keep me on track with what I want to say. Um, but uh, I, I suspect my story is, is not unlike the story of, of many of us who have suffered and have uh, worked, uh, worked the program to, to achieve recovery. Um, I think, you know, what's interesting about and many of us know this about being a compulsive overeater as opposed to some of the other uh, addictions that get tackled in 12-step <clears throat> programs is um, we all have to eat, right? I mean, if, if somebody is an alcoholic or somebody is a drug user or somebody has a problem with gambling, those are things that they can, uh, with the help of a higher power, refrain from entirely. But we, we have to eat. Um, and so that adds an extra dimension kind of to our, to our particular addiction. Um, and I know for many of us, right, our program is really very centered on the food, right, the food program, what we put into our mouths every day, uh, weighing and measuring food. Um, and I think for others of us that's important, but there's also much more of a spiritual component that, that uh, others of us tend to cling to. Um, you know, the big book, the relationship to the higher power, the 12 steps, etc., and then for many of us, it's it's kind of a it's a combination of all those things. I think, and for for really most or if not all of us of all of us, it's a combination of all those things. I think for me, um, I follow a fairly loosely defined food program, but for me, it's really about the spirituality. I mean, that's when I really got in touch with with the spirituality that's involved in this program. That's where I really started to actually make some progress. And I like to sort of say, um, even though I. I I've lost a tremendous amount of weight in a short period of time. It's it's not about the weight. It's about the hate is kind of what I say. And what I, what I mean by that is the extent to which I hated myself and the extent to which I hated the world. I hated everybody and I hated myself. And so sugar and flour and carbs and these things became an outlet for that anger and that resentment. Um, and, and led to uh, the significant problem of compulsive overeating for myself. Um, I grew up when, as a child in what would normally be seen as a pretty normal upper-middle-class family in um, rural Connecticut. Um, we were very well off. Uh, I was always supplied with you know, the, the comforts of life and you know, nice house and clothing and camps in the summer. But uh, the family was was somewhat toxic. The dialogue in my family was somewhat toxic, and I, um, the 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 dialogue and and the um, the words that I heard from my parents were were very damaging and very very toxic to me as a youngster. So 
Um, I was told that I was lazy. I was told that I was stupid. Um, I was called a loser. Um, I was told I would never amount to anything. Um, I was told that um, I was not wanted, um, that I was a burden. Um, and when you're told these things as a child, um, it has the, um, the impact of, of internalizing it. You know, I, I very much internalized this dialogue and, and it became an agreement that I made with myself that this really was my reality, that this is who I was, um, that I was not worth somebody who, who, I was not worth somebody to be around. I was not worth somebody to be uh, a part of, of, of this world. Um, uh, so, so that, I think, really set the stage for me to um, find ways to be very self-destructive and, and find ways uh, to, to be self-abusive. Um, interestingly enough, when I was very, very young, I, I was not very overweight. I had that kind of metabolism where I could eat, 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 and, and you know, it was just my body would just kind of burn it up. My sister, my older sister, was, was very overweight. Um, and the treatment that she received was remarkably cruel from my parents. The things that she was told was, were remarkably cruel from my parents. But as she was told these things, myself and my younger sister, we heard it very, very loud and clear. Um, I, I, five, okay. Uh, you know, I remember, um, you know, I remember in particular, uh, our family was in Palm Springs uh, for Christmas, and um, my aunts and uncles and parents were sitting around the table. Uh, my sister wasn't there. She was in her room. She was probably crying. And I just remember the dialogue being, what are we going to do about this fat child that we have? And I, and I specifically remember my father with a scowl on his face, and he was just kind of, you know, putting his finger in a scotch and, and circling it around. And he said, you know, when she looks like this, I'm so disgusted, I don't want to be around her. And that's the dialogue that was that existed in our household, and that's the the messaging I think we we, we got as children. Um, so uh, so that that really started me on a very self destructive path. Now, one of the things I think, despite all this kind of what, what I would describe as emotional abuse, is is it, the one way it, it seemed like I could make my parents happy was they was this sense of well, if you go out and you're successful. If you have a profession, if you get straight A's, then somehow that makes you worthwhile. And so I devoted all my time to trying to, to prove myself, to going to the right schools, to getting a good job, to working very, very hard to get ahead so I could somehow get some sort of approval. And I very quickly uh, learned or, or developed a habit of, of working extraordinarily long hours in, in, in the professional world. So it, it was not uncommon for me to work 70 to, hour, 70 to 80 hours a week, even uh, when I was young and for, for really what ultimately ended up being about 30 years of doing that. Um, and when you work 70 to 80 hours a week for that long, a few things happen. One, you don't get any exercise. <laughs> you don't get very much sleep. You hate yourself or you're miserable. And you're looking for this escape, this constant escape. And so my escape very quickly became sugar. My escape became food. And quite frankly, I, I introduced myself as an addict and a compulsive overeater because my escape became drugs. My escape became a number of things that were really, really dark and extraordinarily self-destructive. Um, so uh, 
this is, this is sort of what my life was. I was probably eating up to 8,000 calories a day. I was a hopeless addict. And my health began, for obvious reasons, began to suffer pretty badly. And I think there's some pictures that are going around of, of what I looked like when I was at my highest weight. And I suffered severe sleep apnea, um, diabetes. I developed uh, diabetes, certainly in my uh, adult years. Um, and, and a lot of mental health issues, a lot of issues with anxiety, a lot of issues with depression, um, suicidal ideation, some, again, very, very dark stuff. Um, and then, you know, and I think many of us overeaters know this, is, is that the outside world can be very, very cruel as well. Even people who were supposed to be my friends would say, what's the matter with you? You know, why can't you get in shape? Or uh, I had the experience... Some of us have had when you you walk down the aisle of a, of a plane and and people kind of look at you like, please don't sit next to me. Please don't sit next to me. I know what that feels like. I know that pain and I know that feeling of shame. Um, so so after a while, you know, I, I knew I knew I needed help and I went to see a therapist and the therapist said to me, "What is it that that you're really hungry for?" <laughs> Which I thought was really really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm hungry for pizza, <laughs> egg rolls, <laughs> waffles. <laughs> um, I couldn't get it. But I finally understood that what my therapist was trying to tell me was, what is it about yourself that, that is so miserable that you cannot stop even though the, result, the, the end results are constant misery, that you cannot stop yourself even though it always ends up bad for you? And that's really what addiction is. That's what compulsive eating is, that we as addicts can't stop. We're we're powerless over this, even though the results always end up putting us in a bad place. So um, I I started to make that connection, that that connection between what I was suffering from and what an alcoholic suffers from, right, or or, or a drug addict suffers from. And so I found out about Overeaters Anonymous as a 12-step program, and I started to understand that this would be a way out for me. Um, and, uh, and I had to burst some pain, right? I had to go through it. I had to burst some misery. I had to, to realize that I developed this internal dialogue of hatred. Um, and, I, and I had to realize that I had, been, uh, I had been defeated. I had to be desperate and I had to be defeated. I had to absolutely wave the white flag. And so step one at that point became very easy to, you know, um, admit that I was powerless over food and that my life had become unmanageable. Step two was much harder. Came to believe that a higher power, came to believe in a higher power that could return me to sanity because I was, came to this program as a, what I would call a devout atheist. I was a man of science. If I couldn't see it, touch it, feel it, measure it, it wasn't there. Um, so that was, a, that was a, a problem for me to, to try and adopt the sense of a higher power. But one thing I did understand is that, you know, I don't think this program requires you to believe in God and the traditional, you know, thunderbolts and lightning, 40 days of flooding. Uh, the, the program asks that you believe in something bigger than yourself, something, something greater than yourself. And for me, it started off as just this group, just the people in this room became my higher power. Um, in AA, for our, our friends in AA, they always some, some of them will say that God starts off as God, group of drunks, right? <laughs> I guess my God was group of desperate overeaters, right? <laughs> um, 
And, and not only that, but I could see other speakers as they passed around their pictures. I could see the relief that they had achieved. And so even being a man of science, I could understand that this really was real. Um, that this, my, my concept of higher power really has grown to, to, be, to be a sense of, of the love that exists between all living creatures, the love that I find in this room the, and, and in the other rooms, the love that I find in this program, my connection with my fellows, that becomes my higher power and that's the faith upon which I build my recovery. Um, and so that's what happened. Now what is it like today? Today it's, it's a one day at a time thing. It really is. And, and, and I got to be humble. I really got to be humble. I am happy that I've, I've achieved a lot of physical relief. But uh, it's not about being eight months abstinent or eight years abstinent or whatever it is. I, you know, I, I'm a believer in, in the adage, the person who woke up earliest today has the most abstinence. That's, I really believe that. You know, I, My abstinence is one day. I'm abstinent today. <laughs> And, and, and that's really important because of the baffling uh, and cunning, destructive nature of, of, of my disease. Um, I, I would say that, you know, I, I'm not at the point where I've realized all of the, the ninth step promises, but they're starting to come true for me. Um, I, my fear of financial insecurity and in people has been greatly diminished. And uh, that sort of thing is, and, and I'm starting to be able to handle problems that used to, to baffle me. So, so from that standpoint, it's not just the, the recovery, it's these other miracles that, that really exist in my life today. But it is get up in the morning, early in the morning, understand what I'm facing, use the tools of the program, and go at it with a great deal of uh, tenacity um, and a great deal of vigilance and, and a great deal of faith. Um, I also like to say, you know, there is a price to be paid for my recovery, and it's not a price to be taken lightly, and that price is the destruction of my self-centeredness. And that's hard for me. That's hard. I, I that, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, I really, pr- I'm, do, I'm in a state, I'm constantly praying for the elimination of my defects of character. It's almost like my heart has ice in it, and I have to scrape that ice off of my heart every morning as best I can. So I wish it were easy for me to, to just not feel hate or fear or anger or jealousy or shame or uh, arrogance or uh, lust or pride, all these things. It, it's not. It's, 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 I have to pray to my higher power um, and, and humbly pray to my higher power to help remove those, those defects of character. Um, because the destruction of my self-centeredness is something that absolutely uh, is a requirement for me to stay abstinent and sober in this program and in other programs. Um, I also like to say that, you know, my higher power always does for me what I can't do for myself, but my higher power will never do for me what I can do for myself. I can get up and I can go to a meeting. I can read the big book. I can journal. I can call a fellow. Um, I can call my sponsor. Um, I can volunteer for service. I can meditate. I can pray. These are things that my higher power requires of me, and these are things that I can do. And if I do those things, my higher power tends to take care of the rest. I will wrap it up here. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Um, You know, they... Someone once told me that... uh, you know, you, I've turned my will over to God as I understand God. 
Um, I speak to God through prayer and I listen to God through intuition. And when I really got to that low and I really got to basically say, to, to literally get on my knees and, and, and cry, and I had to do a lot of crying, and really, um, really uh, surrender and pray to God for uh, relief from my addiction. And when I was able to do that, my intuition from God was, I thought you'd never ask. I thought you'd never ask. And that's a miracle. And that's a miracle. And, and what, I've, what I've received back is a miracle. Um, and so today, it, it really is the structure and the framework for my recovery. Um, getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise is extremely important. That's something else I think my higher power requires of me. It does, it's not like I have to run three miles or do 20 reps of curls or whatever, but I have to make an effort to, to keep myself physically fit. Any kind of effort, even if it's just walking. I, I, have, to, I have to do the things that I can do. Um, I have to think critically about those things that I know that if I start to eat them, I can't stop. I recently, I don't want to trigger anybody, but I recently was looking at a menu and I saw nachos on the menu and I said, I can never have that ever again. I, I held a, a miniature funeral for nachos. In <laughs> nachos rest in peace. I, will, I can never, because if I have one, I'm in relapse. I'm lost. And people don't understand that. that a lot of people, you know, well, why can't you just have a, no. I can't the same way an alcoholic cannot have a drop of vodka. Um, so, so I'm blessed. I'm really blessed. And I'm very blessed to be here in this room. I think everybody who is here demonstrates remarkable courage. That courage inspires me. Um, we're in this together. And um, I can't do it alone. And your help, your fellowship... Um, your support, your understanding, your compassion, your humility, your, the, the sharing of your experience, strength, and hope, all of that is what enables me to receive this miracle. So um, I want to thank everybody for being here. I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak to this group, and uh, I'm just uh, very blessed to be a part of this fellowship. So, thank you. Thank you very much.